Hello and welcome to each of you. Thank you for listening. This is the January 30th Macedonia North Baptist Church Sunday morning sermon. We are continuing in the book of Genesis. We're setting the record straight. And so we're going to spend our second week looking at the fall. The first week was primarily setting things up. Uh, We looked at the detailed description of the creation of Adam and Eve. We saw that they were placed in the Garden of Eden and uh, that it was an idyllic setting where they had uh, all kinds of trees that bear fruit and they were given um, their choice of any of those trees so long as they did not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God gave them vast freedom uh, at, at this particular time. So as we get into this, today we'll be covering Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 24. Um, this is Genesis chapter 3, as everybody knows, that's where the fall actually happens. And so we're going to be studying that. Now before we get into that, there's a couple of things we do need to talk about. Um, first, one of the fundamental arguments uh, against the existence or the goodness of God is the presence of evil in this world. In these latter days of sin, our definition of evil has become admittedly vague, uh, but there are still things upon which we can all agree. There are people out there who hurt children. There are people who take advantage of the elderly. And there are people that live in blatant disregard for their fellow man. All of those things and you know, many more things, uh, the vast majority of people would agree those are evil things. Why do those evil things exist? If God is good, um, why doesn't he get rid of those things? Along the same lines, others question, uh, why are, is there suffering? You know, the, the traditional uh, Judeo-Christian view of God is that he is all-knowing, he is ever-present, he is all-powerful. We also believe that God is good. In fact, we say that God is love. So when people ask the question, they say, if a good God is all-knowing and all-powerful, why would he allow evil and suffering to exist in this world? And this question has created many atheists because at the end of the day, people see the pain and the suffering they see unveiled evil in this world and they just simply believe that a good, all-powerful God cannot exist. Because if he did, he would not have allowed that to happen. He would have at least brought forth justice immediately. Uh, But we know that in this world, evil seems to have free reign. We know that suffering is not only present, but it's prevalent. This morning, as we study this passage, uh, we are going to look at the beginning of sin, and in that story, we will understand why evil and suffering exists and why it continues to go on. As we study this passage, you may ask, why did God let this happen if he knew uh, that it would lead to all the evil and suffering that humans have known throughout our history? Here's the point. God created man and woman 
to live in loving obedience to his will. God allowed Satan to tempt the couple to try their loving obedience. God did not simply program us to obey, but in love, he gave us a choice. When we choose to obey God, there is joy and blessing in that that we would never know from forced obedience. Before we read this text, we do need to briefly talk about the serpent. The serpent uh, was an evil personal intelligence uh, that we should view as the fallen angel Satan. So the Hebrew word that in most of our Bibles is translated serpent can either mean snake, serpent, or it can mean shining one. So when we look at this shining one, the Genesis account suggests that uh, the, being the, the being that approached Eve was far more than a biological reptile. Um, this shining one or serpent was not one of the beasts of the field. It says it was far more subtle or far more clever or crafty than the beasts of the field. Uh, and it is destined for a greater curse than any of them. And we'll see that in verse 14. Um, also, when we look at that curse, snakes do not literally eat dust. Um, the expression that God makes when he's cursing the, the serpent or the shining one, it is, it is a metaphor for humility. You're going you're gonna to eat dust. Like when we uh, take off and we race someone, we say, eat dust, and we take off, and hopefully we win that race, and, and they are humbled because of it. You know, and another thing, and I know that there are a lot of Southerners that will vehemently disagree with me, but there is no natural enmity between mankind and snakes. We hate them, but we have been taught to hate them from a very, very early age. Um, you have to teach children that poisonous reptiles are dangerous. Once you teach them that, we in the South, we learn that lesson very well uh, because we see them and we know that we need to stay away from them. But there is an enmity. And when we read Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, in a minute, we're going to see that that enmity is not just between the woman and the serpent or the shining one or whatever that word would actually translate, but that enmity is between the serpent and the seed of the woman. Not plural as in all people, but, but singular as in this special seed. We'll talk about this in a minute, but ultimately, there is enmity between Jesus and Satan. Overall, Satan is the enemy, and that's what this curse begins to reveal to us. You know, it won't do to try to pass off the serpent as an innocent creature that was carrying out a divine um, ordained job of testing the human pair, uh, nor even as an ambiguous creature who later became the paradigm for evil. This was a directed attack by Satan upon humanity, but more specifically upon God. Adam and Eve were deceived by the ultimate enemy of God, and one day, long in the future, our Lord Jesus Christ will crush his head. Okay, before I read the text to you, we're going to do a sermon in a sentence, and it is simply this. God's plan for us is good, but we sin when we think that we know better than God. 
when we look at all the sins in the world, even to this day, uh, many, if not most of them, have to do with the fact that people try to take the place of God. They try to decide good and evil. They try to decide who gets to live and who dies. They try to decide how things should be created or how things should be done when God makes that decision. So let's look at the first time humans chose to do that and the fallout, the consequences, everything. So we're going to be reading Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through verse 24. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his, the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. 
Now, lest he reach out his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. Therefore God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, so we're going to look at this in three parts. The first part is temptation and sin. Um, so we see that the devil, uh, and I prefer to refer to him as the devil rather than the serpent because we know what the force is behind the serpent. So the devil approached Eve with a question. So in terms of the, the grammar of this sentence, he says, Indeed, to think that God said, that's not really a question, but it's a feigned expression of surprise or shock. Did God really say? It's a it's surprising. It's not he's not really asking Eve a question. He's just surprised that that would be the idea in their heads. Um, it served to raise a question in Eve's mind. Did God really say not to eat from some of the trees in the garden? So the accusation held the dark suggestion that God was not kind, that it was mean of God to withhold anything from that human pair. The devil directed attention away from God's broad permission and drew it only to his restriction. Not a word did he say about the thousands of trees that God had given. we got to remember, God gave them every kind of tree, every kind of fruit tree. Now, we live in a modern age with grocery stores we can go to. We can get any kind of fruit we want almost any time of the year. Just imagine thinking about way back when, that first time that you had an orange, and that first time that you, you had an, an apple, that first time that you ate a fig, that first time you were able to go and pick some blueberries and eat them fresh off the bush, that was the life experience of Adam and Eve. They had access to all of these things. And yes, they had to work in that garden, but they didn't have to toil the way we do today in order to have that food. Instead of all of that freedom and all of that joy that God had given them, Satan zeroed in on the one tree God had forbidden, and he tried to convince Eve that limiting mankind in this way was not very kind of God. If God was really kind, he seemed to have implied, he would let them eat of any and all trees in the garden. You know what? This is still the devil's way. Why should anything be out of bounds and off limits? Why should any fruit be forbidden? Restriction is unkind. Now, when we think about the logical ramifications of that, uh, and we look at humankind, take what we know. We know that people in general try to push boundaries and push barriers. Uh, that's one of the things that you have to learn when you're raising children is that they're always going to try to push those boundaries. And only when they find them and they find that no means no and you know certain things are restricted, that's when they begin to settle in and become who they are. But if they never find those boundaries, they keep pushing. They keep going further and further and worse and worse until they get to a point where they do something where the consequence is not met out by the parents, but by greater authorities. Those are sad and sorry situations for people to be in, but God put restrictions in place so that we would know where we could exist, where we could live, where we could be happy. For Adam and Eve, that restriction was simply, don't eat of this tree. And again, we, we mentioned this last week, it wasn't about the tree, 
the fruit itself wasn't poison or, or wrong in some way. It's just that God said, not this tree, not this one tree. So the devil still works the same way. He tries to convince you that God is unkind because he keeps things away from you. He wants you to think that there are things that are good that God is keeping from you. And by doing that, he basically puts us in a position where we're seeking the things that could harm us rather than the things that could help us. You know, there are three rules that we must follow when we deal with what God has said. Take nothing from it, add nothing to it, and change nothing in it. When we look at what God said in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, and what Eve said in Genesis chapter 3, verse 2 and 3, we see that Eve broke all three of these rules. She misquoted God's permission. Leaving out freely makes God appear less generous. So God said you may freely eat of any of the trees in the Garden of Eden. Eve said we may eat of any of the trees. So she, she leaves something out. She takes something out. But also she overstates it or she, she adds to it. She overstated God's prohibition, adding neither shall you touch it made God appear more narrow. Can't eat it, can't touch it, don't don't look at it. Those kinds of things are also problems. So there are people um, that try to make God appear as if he's not generous or try to omit certain things that God has forbidden. There are also people uh, mishandling the word of God that try to overstate what God does. This goes into legalism, right? And so it's also another kind of problem. Um, she also understates God's penalty. Um, God said, you shall surely die. She says, lest you die. And so that's the difference between the weatherman saying it might rain and it's certainly going to rain. Um, God said, you will certainly die. Dying, you shall die. And we talked about last week even what that meant. That meant that, the, that mankind would then be under a death penalty. And we all walk under that death penalty every day of our lives. We will one day face death. We will one day return to the earth from which we were brought and all of that has to do with sin. But Eve made it seem as if it was a possibility that you could die, um, as if sometimes the tree killed you, sometimes it didn't. Satan came back at Eve uh, after this question. He came back with a negotiation. Um, Satan moved to a direct frontal assault on God's earlier threat. He says, you will not surely die, because you see, Satan knew what the penalty would be. He understood, and Eve obviously did not. She demonstrated that she did not. So if he could trick her and help her to understand or make her see that she wasn't going to die immediately, then she would believe Satan over against what God had said. Implicit in this case is the suggestion that he knows the mind of God better than Eve does and thereby knows what God knows. So, the, the devil's words hold the nasty suggestion that God himself was not sincere. Um, he says that the threat of judgment is not real. Uh, God was not on the level when he warned that sin pays wages. Now, we know that the wages of sin is death. But Satan was convincing Eve that there were no real consequences. You will not surely die. There are no real consequences for breaking God's law. This is, again, still the way of the enemy. No sinner has ever intended the consequences of his sin. Never once in my long history uh, and, and career of being a sinner have I intended the consequences of my sin. 
I only intended the sin. When, when I did something wrong and I knew it was wrong, I didn't want it to have a bunch of consequences. I certainly didn't want it to affect anyone else, but it always does. It breaks the hearts of those that love you. It causes pain and suffering of those around you. And it has a direct bearing on your relationship with God. You know, so long as Satan can convince people that there is no judgment for sin, um, that, that sin doesn't leave to, lead to broken lives and eternal hell, um, he can convince people to sin. You know, if we know that sin brings pain, if we know that there is judgment for sin, if we know that we will give an account for everything that we do, that might help us avoid sin. It might give us another motivation to reject a sinful lifestyle. But Satan has convinced people not only does God not exist, but there's no, there's no consequence for sin. There's no judgment. In fact, if you judge, then you are the one that's evil and wrong. And so just do whatever you want to do. And so people lead these lives of sin with no fear of God, with no fear of the consequences, with no respect to what it does to other people. Satan has managed to convince the whole world that they alone can judge their own morality. And this is a shame. You know, the last attack that Satan brings against Eve is an affirmation. Um, he slandered God's motives. In fact, the serpent says, God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, the way that Satan used the word know, that means experience, okay? So he actually lied in this moment as well, because God knows good with experience, because he is good, he is loving, he is kind, and all he's ever done is good. But God only knows evil in an intellectual sense. He does not commit evil. He did not make evil. Evil came about because he allowed free will. And so when we understand that, we begin to understand the lie that Satan was holding, telling. Uh, Satan's dark words hold the suggestion that God wasn't being fair with Adam and Eve. He replied that God was being selfish. God was keeping knowledge to himself that would be better for Adam and Eve to have. Um, God was trying to make sure that Adam and Eve would never become his equals. This is not something humans should ever aspire to, but it is something that Satan tempts us to strive for, and so therefore it becomes one of the sins that we commit. God was denying men not only something which they um, have a right to, but something that would actually benefit them. He was keeping something back that would make man better and more well-rounded uh, in his experiences. And again, this is still the way of Satan to this day. If a person listens, the devil will convince him he wants some forbidden experience. He needs to know what it's like and will be better off in the long run if he has it. He tries to convince us that disobedience will bring a positive blessing. Eating from the tree will make the pear godlike. You know, and that's... When you look at it, the world uses this same tactic that Satan does, uh, marketing, advertising. They convince you that you need something. Um, think about a time that you saw a commercial for something that you never knew existed, and all of a sudden, you had to have it. You know, I think about things that are that are new in the world, um, and, and some of them are very, very good, and I'm definitely not making it out like that they're bad, but things that are new in the world, and all of a sudden, everybody thinks they need to have them. We have only had telephones in existence. Um, they've only been in existence for about 120 years or so. Well, when we look at 
um, the way that they came about, people didn't have them in their homes, not on a regular, like every person sort of basis uh, until the 50s or 60s. And even some, some families didn't have them then. And then when we look a little bit further and we see that you know, people people had them in their homes, but they were connected to walls and 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 they were connected to cords. Uh, the cordless phone kind of became a a thing that people had in the late '80s and into the '90s. But now, people refuse to go anywhere without a phone in their hand. It's a relatively new invention in terms of the history of humanity, but we think we have to have it. We have to have it at all times. And we and we have to be so engaged with it that now, if you'll notice, people walk around with little headphones in their ears, not connected to anything, but, but through the air, they're listening to something or they're engaged with media in some way. They think they need to have it at all times. Satan convinces us that we need what God has forbidden. And when we partake in that, it doesn't bring the joy that we think it's going to bring. It only brings heartache, sorrow, suffering, and ultimately, judgment. When Eve looked again at the tree, she saw it in a new and different light. You know, she saw that it was physically appealing. It was uh, good for food. It was aesthetically pleasing. It was a delight to look at. Uh, and it was intellectually transforming. It was good for acquiring wisdom. In other words, she just saw what Satan wanted her to see. Um, it was the latter that was most attractive. Uh, Eve felt the need uh, to have something that she did not have in order to, to be happy. Uh, the result, she took the fruit, she ate it in direct obedience to God's clear command. Now, this is bad enough. She looks at this fruit, she sees it, she takes it, she eats it. Worse still, she gave the fruit to Adam, and he ate it also. The woman did not try to tempt the man. She gave and he took without challenge or without question. You know, what he should have done was to refuse and then go to God and beg, along with Eve, beg for her forgiveness. Uh, the great harm was done when Adam ate the fruit, not when she ate it, because he was the responsible head of the human race. Uh, he was the main goal of Satan's attack from the very beginning. When Adam ate, Satan achieved his goal. So sin entered the race and affected all humankind, all human beings after that. Adam's sin was worse than Eve's because she was deceived, but he knew exactly what he was doing and he did it anyway. Uh, his eating was the last and de decisive act of disobedience, for immediately the consequences of their sin start being described. So that brings us to the second part. We're going to be looking at shame and blame. Shame and blame. Adam and Eve did not become gods, but instead they only uh, became miserable uh, because their sin involved guilt and shame. Instead of becoming like the gods, the couple came to see that they were naked. That was hardly the knowledge that they had bargained for. Concealment was the order of the day at this point. Uh, first, the pair tried to hide their nakedness from each other by clothing themselves with leaves. Uh, then they disappeared among the trees to try to hide even from God himself. God came looking for the falling man in grace. It says that he walked in the cool of the evening. Uh, he called out to Adam, where are you? And this was not an accusatory question. It was just simply a question. The Lord addressed the question to Adam. Where are you? Not where is Adam and Eve. Uh, and again, it was a question. It wasn't a commandment at that point. God didn't say, come out. Did God know that Adam and Eve were hiding? Absolutely he knew. 
But he still asked the question because he did not come down simply to punish, but rather to try to start a restorative relationship, even at that point. So the Almighty chose to draw them out of their hiding rather than command them out of their hiding. Um, in the following verse, um, men comments only on his behavior. He says, I hid myself. He doesn't say anything about Eve at this point. Uh, this probably indicates that God was already holding man responsible uh, for everything that had happened. You know, the thing is, Adam didn't actually answer the questions that God had. Instead, uh, he answered the question, why are you hiding? Um, God didn't say, why are you hiding? He said, where are you? And Adam immediately started saying, well, I hid myself because. Um, he said he hid himself because he was naked. Uh, his response, that brought about two questions from God. God said, first of all, who told you that you were naked? God didn't give Adam a time or chance to answer that question. He moves right forward and he says, have you eaten from the tree? Because God knows what's happened. And he doesn't want to give Adam too many opportunities um, to, to dig himself even deeper into the hole. At this point, Adam should have simply said yes. Now, God may have started a path of forgiveness at that point. Um, but Adam became defensive and he became devious. He pointed the finger of blame at Eve and even at God. He said, the woman that you gave me gave me this fruit, so I ate it. He played up their part. Eve gave him the fruit. God gave him Eve. And all he really did was eat the fruit. And so he, 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 he downplays his part, minimizing his own involvement, um, and, and, and puts it all the way at the end of the statement. Um, so Eve turns around and she blames the serpent. She blames Satan. Uh, this too is characteristically human. People are inclined to justify their conduct by pointing to the circumstances and fate that God allotted them in lives. We don't want to take responsibility. You know, I've heard people say recently, this modern generation, they don't want to take responsibility for anything. Well, I don't know what makes us think that this is a new thing. When we look back at Adam and Eve, the first people ever, six, seven thousand years ago, whenever this actually happened, they were immediately playing the blame game. We have to realize that that is part of the human experience. We don't want to take credit for anything. We don't want to take responsibility for anything, and we certainly don't want to be held accountable for our actions. That's how we have always been. Shame and blame. Shame and blame. So let's look at this. Now, uh, that Adam and Eve have... Um, they have been tempted, and they have fallen into sin. They felt the shame of their sin, and they tried to point the blame off in every different direction. So now it's God's time. And what God brings is both judgment and mercy. So first of all, we need to point out that God pronounced curses on all three parties. The one on the serpent is very, very interesting. It's, it's obviously... Um, it's, it's sad and it's God's curse, but it's also very interesting. It's, it's really uh, held in verse uh, 14 and 15. Um, there's no reason to separate the two curses. Um, by placing enmity between Satan and the woman, God put the lie to the false friendship Satan had attempted. Satan tried to be Eve's friend, uh, and God reveals that to be a lie. No, he's not your friend. He is the enemy. Satan had made himself out to be the friend. But God uh, was made out to be the enemy. And God is, is speaking truth here. God declared that the real enmity lay between man and Satan, not between man and God. 
In verse 15, this is one of the most famous verses in the Bible. And really, there are two ways that people look at it. Um, there is a group that says this is nothing but a, a curse. There's no good in it. Um, but there are other people who believe that God is promising at this very point uh, to send a Savior to defeat Satan on behalf of mankind. They call this the Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel. Um, what this actually uh, says here is that the woman's seed and the serpent's seed uh, are, are um, at enmity. And, and what they do uh, to each other is the same, but it is the woman's seed that actually wins. Um, so it's uh, the, the, the verb there is actually to strike out. So he will strike your head, you will strike his heel. Um, uh, a wound to the heel is not usually fatal. Um, unless your name just happens to be Achilles. Um, but a wound to the head usually is. Um, the promise is that some unspecified member of the human race will one day strike a fatal blow against the serpent's seed. Now, when we have the benefit and the perspective of the whole Bible, the idea is that on the cross, the serpent or Satan, he struck at the heel of the Son of God, at Jesus himself. But the Son bruised the head of the serpent. Later on, God revealed that it is Jesus who reigns until he puts all his enemies under his feet. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25, so that they will lick the dust. And we see that throughout the Bible. Psalms, Isaiah, Micah. Um, so there is coming a day when God will fulfill completely this promise. We know that Jesus has come to this earth. He died on the cross. He struck a fatal blow to Satan. Um, but all of that subjugating and humbling and, 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 and making Satan and, and all of his horde and all of his uh, minions become you know footstools for Jesus, that's still going on. That's still in process because we see that evil, at least for a short period of time, is still having its way and it's still running. So that's the curse on the serpent. Now let's look at the curse on the woman. Um, God placed a specific curse in verse 16. Um, there was a blessing in that she would be able to bear children. Um, but the judgment is that um, this, this, this promise, bearing children, would come with great pain and discomfort. Um, so God is not withdrawing his previous command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, but it now comes with great difficulty. And this pain uh, is not just the experience of childbearing, but it is also the whole process of bringing children into the world and raising them into mature uh, members of society. Those out there that are listening, um, that are parents, you know that there is great difficulty uh, when it comes to actually bearing a child, but there is extended agony when it comes into raising a child into a responsible, God-fearing adult. So, the other part of the curse that God puts on Eve is that her desire 
will be for her husband. Now, when you read that in most translations, it, it just says that your desire will be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. Most Bibles are also going to have a footnote that says something about your desire will be to rule over your husband. Um, there is a connection here. This is the same verb that appears in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, where God is speaking to Cain. Cain has sinned, um, and he has, he has made a mistake, and his countenance has fallen, he's angry, and God tells him, sin's desire is for you. And we understand that sin's desire is to rule over mankind, or our sinful nature wants to rule over what moral nature we might have. And so that helps us to understand what God is saying here. Um, it, some, some translations even say that the word should be, is contrary. So, like, her desire is against her husband. Her desire is contrary uh, to her husband, um, and he's going to rule over her. Um Ruling over her is mentioned here because the woman had acted contrary to this principle when she ate the fruit and led her husband uh, to eat with her. So the beautiful picture, the two that once reigned as one, now they'll attempt to rule over each other. Um, there's a book called Hard Sayings of the Bible, and what they actually suggest in that book is that, that, that this language means you are turning away from God to your husband and as a result, he will take advantage of you. And if we look at the vast majority of, of, of examples of men and women, yes, that does seem to be true. Um, what we see is that the, the harmony of the relationship between man and woman was destroyed in the Garden of Eden. And it has really never been fully restored again. Um, People want to make this uh, an argument for uh, man and woman either being equal or complementing one another. Uh, people want to make this an argument of who is the head of household. Well, God had already established that. God had put mankind in responsibility. God had held Adam accountable. Uh, so we know that, that that's the, the design and the plan of God. This has to do with the fact that the harmony that God had intended man and woman to live with is shattered, uh, and it will not be restored until sometime in the future because of sin. Now, God also placed a curse on man. The biggest part of this curse actually falls on the earth. Um, so thorns and thistles are going to grow where a man is trying to grow crops. Um, he's going to cultivate the earth, um, but these thorns and thistles, it's going to hinder his uh, work. He's going to sweat. He's going to toil. Um, there is a blessing because he will eat from the fruit of the earth. He will eat what he grows. Um, but his lot is one of toil um, from which really he'll only find relief when he returns to the earth. So this toil and fatigue that are man's lot will be part and parcel of his life until he dies. Um, we have a trend going on now in America today. Um, people want to blame capitalism, um, but people essentially want to say that working 40 hours a week or, or work in general for someone else, that that's, that's kind of a new form of slavery. Um, people point out specifically America, that America is bad because of the culture that we have to, to work long hours um, and, and, and not have a lot of time off and things like that. Well, let's look at that for just a moment. Work predates sin. That's that's easy to point out. 
Adam and Eve were to work in the Garden of Eden. That was in Genesis chapter 2. But when sin came along, God put a curse on mankind. And that curse had to do with the sort of work and the result of work. Work in the Garden of Eden was rewarding. Work gave purpose and meaning to life. But outside of the Garden of Eden, work brings toil. Now that word always means difficult labor. It brings suffering. It brings disappointment. All the things that, that we associate with you know, a bad job or something that we don't enjoy, that's what work now brings. Now, when we think about this, what that means is that God's curse has proved to be absolutely true. So all of this desire not to work, all of this rage against capitalism, all of this that people say, well, it's it's bad and wrong for us to work. We should just, you know, uh, the rich should just give us money and give us food and all those kinds of things. All of that desire is just proving out God's curse on mankind, proving that God is 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 right by what he says. So when we look at work, um, is work bad? Is work itself a punishment upon mankind? Absolutely no, it is not. It is not a punishment on mankind. It is the toil, it is the suffering, it's the exhaustion, it's the futile feeling that we get. That's the curse. That's the part that comes from sin. So we can separate those two out. Um, it is sinful to not work. When we look at society, it is it is building blocks. Think about the game of Jenga. You know, it's a it's a game where there's a tower made out of blocks, and the object of the game is to to pull some of those blocks out without causing the whole tower to collapse. When you look at society, it's like a big game of Jenga, right? And so there are parts of our economy and and our society that you could pull out, and although it would destabilize us a little bit, the whole structure wouldn't come falling down. You know, so let's say, for example, you took out, and, and, and this kind of seems to be happening in some ways, you took out the entire um, fast food industry in our country. Would we all starve to death? Well, no, we wouldn't, but it would become difficult for us. Um, you know, when you take out that fast food industry, it, it, it's, go it's going to change the way people eat. It's going to affect a lot of things. When we look right now in our society, they're one of the, the industries that's having a very difficult time, you know, filling out their staff and, 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 and fulfilling the, the needs that they need to run their business. And so what if that whole industry just disappeared? Well, it would have a, a destabilizing effect in a lot of ways because it would change the way that people ate. But as long as there was a grocery store, as long as people could still you know, make food in some way or another, um, microwaves would fly off the shelf because a lot of people don't know how to cook. And those that knew how to cook, then they'd make sure that they were buying more and more groceries. Well, then that would continue to destabilize more because as we've seen, when, when there's a run on something, it takes much, much longer to replenish those things. So... Is work evil? No, but the it, it's actually part of what we have to do in order to survive. But when we look at the 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 pain and the suffering and the the futile feeling, that is the curse. That's what God uh, pronounced upon mankind because of Adam's sin. So there are some consequences here. Very simple. Sin separated mankind from God. The primal pair tried to hide. 
uh, from God, and Adam even tried to blame God for his failure. So that put enmity between man and God. That separated us. That root, that hurt the relationship. The uh, the only way that that relationship is restored is through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, it separated man from woman. Adam tried to relay, lay the responsibility of the sin at the feet of Eve also. The woman gave me the fruit and I ate it. Um, so that relationship, um, although it still exists, we still have a relationship with God, uh, or at least a, a knowledge of God, we also still have a relationship uh, with man and woman, but it is not what it was originally intended to be. And then also it disrupted the original harmony with nature because God cursed the ground itself. When we look at the world now, it doesn't function the way that it was intended to simply because God uh, cursed this ground. He cursed it. And so there, there, there's difficulties that we now have. You look at certain countries, America is amazingly blessed with, with fertile soil and plenty of sources of water. But look at some of the places in the world that doesn't have all the water that we have, doesn't have the wetlands, doesn't have the trees and things like that. It is difficult to scratch out a living in that dirt. And that is part of the curse. So the, the story also closes with three matters. First of all, Adam named his wife Eve, uh, signifying life source. He still believed in the goodness of God that there would be life after sin. Um, second, in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, God gave the pair coats of skin. Um, this clothing was more durable than the fig leaves that they had made. Um, uh, it, you know, it, it accepts the sin and, and, the, and the, 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 the covering. But, you know, there are people, there are people who say, um, that this clothing, this clothing of man called for the killing of animals and that that was a sacrifice. Um, and, and the parallel is that Christ died uh, to clothe sinners in divine righteousness. And that is true. So clothing preceded expulsion from the garden. So what we see here is that grace came before judgment. They were not expelled in a vulnerable way. They were clothed. They were covered. They were prepared. God's grace is displayed. You know, this is actually a pattern uh, that we're going to see throughout, that when God makes an act of judgment, um, those acts of judgment are relieved to at least some extent by a demonstration of mercy. Um, we see this theme over and over again in Genesis. So, uh, in verse 22, God cast the couple out of Eden and closed the gate, um, barring re-entry. So by eating, Lord Adam and Lady Eve gained nothing and they lost everything. Uh, and what uh, was done, it, it just simply could not be undone. Um, concerned that man might put forth or reach out his hand and, and, and take from the uh, tree of life and live forever, um, the, the pair, they were cast out of Eden and God set a cherubim or an angel and a, and a flaming sword that turned in every direction, protecting the tree of life from mankind. This flaming sword meant not uh, a sword of fire, but flashing or, or like a glittering weapon, uh, one sure to hit and one sure to bring death. So the garden of Eden was forever closed to mankind. So that's the judgment, that's the mercy of God and the judgment of God. Um, so let's look at this uh, just to kind of wrap this up and kind of in conclusion. Even east of Eden, God's mercy still glimmered. The woman heard that her seed would ultimately triumph over the serpent or over the devil. 
Even though the Lord expelled the pair, he clothed them, suggesting that he had compassion on them. And Adam and Eve left the garden together, not separated from each other. You know, as we continue on in the book of Genesis, we're going to see how sin spread and how it was multiplied. We really don't see very much more from Adam and Eve personally, but we know that the sin they started continues, and it even gets worse. Um, the account never explains how the sins of Adam and Eve spread, but it clearly shows that every son of Adam and every daughter of Eve, uh, they came and they still come into this world with a nature bent, warped, and twisted by sin. And if we did not have the promise of an eventual victory, this would be a very dark and very bleak story indeed. But what we have, the mercy that God showed to all of us, was that this this devil, this deceiver, this liar that's been sinning from the beginning, he's defeated. We can say that in the past tense because we know that Jesus defeated him. So just as God killed those animals to clothe Adam and Eve, Jesus himself died. But we are not clothed with animal skins when we enter into a relationship with Jesus. We are clothed in righteousness. So, is there judgment for sin? Absolutely. When God looks upon sinners, he judges them. But when he looks upon sinners saved by grace, he sees the divine righteousness that Jesus has given us. And because of that, he passes over our sins and allows us a right relationship with him, eternal life with him. And so when we look at Genesis chapter 3, we can certainly see why evil is in the world. It entered this world through sin. It entered this world through the deception um, of, of, of Satan uh, deceiving Eve and Adam willfully going along with it. But then we also see where suffering comes from. Suffering from childbirth, suffering from parenting, suffering from work. It just seemed like one right after another. That before the fall, before sin, there was not suffering. Evil entered into this world, and it entered into the hearts of mankind, and it brought with it pain, suffering, and eventually death. So why does God allow this to continue? Because he is giving each person time to believe in Jesus Christ and, and, and to trust him as their Lord and Savior. And so if you look at this world and you see suffering, just know that even that is a measure of God's grace as he is waiting for one more person, one more person, one more person to believe in Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian this morning and you want to see an end to this suffering, tell people about Jesus. If you are not a Christian listening to this for some miracle, you've made it all the way to the end, let me tell you that the key to the end of suffering and evil in this world is believing in Jesus Christ. Trust in Him. He will save you. He will bring you into a whole new life and He will give you eternal life with His Father. That relationship that was intended from the very beginning can be restored. Thank you for listening today. I hope this has been an encouragement and a blessing to you. Uh, and I certainly look forward to uh, to being with the church in person very, very soon. We just pray for health uh, for everyone, that they can get well. 
we know that this uh, coronavirus has been uh, rampant uh, in our families and, and, and all across the world. And we just pray for God's protection and we pray that everybody can recover so that we can come back together and worship the Lord in person. But until then, stay strong in Him. Read the Word. Continue to sing the songs that we know that praise His name. And be faithful to tell others about Jesus because He is the promise that came out of the sin and the temptation and, and, and all the sorrow that happened in Genesis chapter 3. He is the answer to all of those problems.